Chapter 21, Part 2 of Gilbert Keith Chesterton. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dick Bourgeois Doyle. Gilbert Keith Chesterton by Maisie Ward. Chapter 21, Part 2 The War Years. In September 1916, Cecil Chesterton bade farewell to the new witness. He was in the army as a private in the East and in the East Surreys, and G.K. took over the editorship. I like Chesterton's paper, The New Witness, wrote an American journalist in the New York Tribune, no, not yet Herald Tribune, since G.K.C. has taken it over. Gilbert Chesterton seems to me the best thing England has produced since Dickens. I like the things he believes in, and I hate sociological experts and prohibitionists and Ullen officers, which are the things he hates. I feel in him that a very honest man is speaking. I like his impotence to Northcliffe. As a journalist, Chesterton gets only about a quarter of himself into action, but even a quarter of Chesterton is good measure. He works very hard at his journalism. That is why he doesn't do it as well as his careless things, which give him fun. But for all that, there is no other editorial page in England or the United States written with the snap, wit, and honest humanity of his paragraphs. I hope he won't blunt himself by overwork. It would be an international loss if that sane, jolly mind is bent to routine. England has need of him. The overwork and the high quality of it were alike undeniable. But after the long repose of his illness, G.K. seemed like a giant refreshed and ready to run his course. Each week's new witness had an editorial. Besides the paragraphs of which the New York Tribune speaks, not all of these, however, written by himself, and a signed article under the suggestive general heading at the sign of the world's end. The difference between articles and a real book and the degree of work needed to turn the one into the other may be seen if the essays on marriage in the paper be compared with the superstition of divorce for which they furnished material and those in Ireland with Irish impressions. There were besides very many articles in other papers, English and American, and he was also writing his History of England. If all Englishmen had kept the same unwavering gaze at reality as Chesterton, much of what he called the rather feeble-minded reaction that followed the war might have been avoided, and with it the advent of Hitler. Particularly he opposed the tendency to call Kaiserism, what is now called Hitlerism, and should always be called Prussianism. While agreeing that care should be taken not to write of German atrocities that could not be substantiated, he insisted that there was no ground for forgetting or ignoring the findings of the American inquiry in Belgium, which had established more than enough. These horrors, the bombing of civilians, shelling of open towns, and sinking of passenger ships, culminating with the Lusitania, were in the main what brought America into the war. Here, as with England, Chesterton did not admit as primary what has since been so exclusively stressed, the economic motive. Here, as with England, he took the volunteer army as one great proof of the will of the nation, and those of us who remember can testify that in America, as in England, the will of the people was ahead of the decision of the politicians. On one point, Chesterton's articles have a special interest, the question of reprisals. When the Germans broke yet another of the promises of the Hague Convention, 
and initiated the use of poison gas, there was much discussion as to the ethics of reprisals, and G.K. used against reprisals two arguments, one of which was a rare example of a fallacy in his arguments. If a wasp stings you, he said, do not sting back. No, we might reply, but you squash it. You have as a man an advantage over a wasp, and so do not need to use its own weapons to defeat it. His other argument is far more powerful, and is indeed overwhelming. If you use, even as reprisals, unlawful weapons, it is harder to prove you did not initiate them. And I remember well another feeling at the time expressed by G.K., which was, I believe, that of the majority of the English people. If we use these things, if we accept the Prussian gospel of frightfulness, then spiritually we have lost the war. Spiritually, Prussia had conquered, as she has engulfed the old Germanies, and first imposing her rule, then gained acceptance of her ideas. So it may be with us. Ideas are everything, and the barbarians destroy more with ideas than even by material weapons, horrible as these may be. Inclined at first to hope for the fruits of democracy from the Russian Revolution, Chesterton was soon being reproached by H.G. Wells for dirty suspiciousness about the Bolshevik leaders and their motives. But the collapse of Russia and the defeat of Romania alike only strengthened the necessity of the fight to a finish with Prussia that became, as the months passed, the absorbing aim of the new witness. In the treaties, respectively, Brest-Litovsk and Bucharest-Germany imposed upon these two countries incredibly harsh terms. Thus wrote the new witness after the Treaty of Bucharest. We should like to ask the pacifists and semi-pacifists who are fond of official documents if they have read the white paper dealing with the plain facts about the peace with Romania. If they have a single word to say on the subject, we should be much interested to hear what it is. It makes absolutely plain two facts, both of which have a sort of frightful humor after all. The humanitarian talk about no annexations and no indemnities. The first is that the conquerors have annexed in a direct and personal sense beyond what is commonly meant by annexation. The second is they have indemnified themselves by an immediate coercion and extortion, which is generally veiled by the forms of a recognized indemnity. In annexing some 9,000 square miles, they have been particular to attach whole forests to the hunting grounds of the Hungarian nobles and the timber of Hungarian wood merchants, not merely annexing as a conqueror annexes, but rather stealing as an individual steals. Further, the fun growing fast and furious, they have taken country containing 130,000 Romanians merely because it is uninhabited land. For the second point, we often speak figuratively of tyrants enslaving a country, but Teutons do literally enslave. All the males of the occupied land, which happen to be two-thirds of Romania, are driven to work on pain of death or prison. All this is clear and satisfactory enough, but the white paper keeps the best to the last. It is this sentence we would commend to our peaceful friends. The German delegates informed the Romanian delegates, who were appalled at being required to accept such conditions, that they would appreciate their moderation when they knew those which would be imposed on the Western powers after the victory of the Central Empires. 
the reminder was needed. Far less than most people was Chesterton subject to the weakness of the human spirit that brings weariness in sustained effort and premature relaxation. Prussia had not, he said, shown any evidence of repentance, merely of regret for lack of success. The Kaiser said he had not wanted this war. No, said Chesterton, he wanted a different war. Chesterton might, and did say later, that he himself had wanted a very different peace. The destruction of Prussia, the reconstruction of the old German states, but at present he wanted only to fight on until this became possible. I do not think he ever hated anybody, but he did hate Prussianism as the wickedness that hindered loving, and he had no liking for the patronizing pacifism of the gentleman, it was Romain Roland, who took a holiday in the Alps and said he was above the struggle, as if there were any Alp from which the soul can look down on Calvary. There is indeed one mountain among them that might be very appropriate to so detached an observer, the mountain named after Pilate, the man who washed his hands. Uses of Diversity, page 40, Fountain Library. His keen imagination could visualize the sufferings caused by war. Vicariously, he knew something of the life of the trenches, for Cecil, like many another seaman, had managed to get to France. A delightful article on comradeship shows what letters from soldiers confirm, how perfectly at home was Private Chesterton among his fellows, and how much loved by them. English soldiers are classed A, B, or C according to their degree of physical fitness, and Cecil was in class C. I can understand a pagan, but not a Christian, who simply dismisses the suffering of our soldiers as useless. He is like Dr. Hyde, scorning Father Damien, or like those who cried at the foot of the cross. He saved others, himself he cannot save. They saved others, these men, their suffering, was that of the human race, whose head is Christ. With him they bore, even if they knew it not, that mysterious burden of humanity that makes some men question God's existence, but draws others into conscious membership of his physical body. Many were so drawn in those days, and there seemed a new lifting up of the cross. The new witness does, I think, lack one note a little. They were too busy hating Prussianism to give thought to the Christian command to love Prussians, whose sufferings, too, were those of humanity. Into the opposite error, there was no risk that they would fall. Never for them would heroism be belittled in the name of the very horrors it was encountering. In one article, Bellock touched on this strange perversion and reminded his readers that the power to ravage and destroy was not really a new result of modern machinery. Attila and his Huns had inflicted even greater devastation and had left a desert behind them. Barbarism in its nature was destructive, and we were encountering barbarism. In so doing, we were acting the part of Christian men. But the old fight still had to be waged on the home front against the money power, and against what the new witness called Prussianism at home. Unceasingly, they battled for fair treatment for soldiers' wives and children, for freedom from unmeaning and unnecessary regulations, against the profiteering by big firms and the consequent crushing of small. About 2,000 small butcher shops, for instance, had to close at the very beginning of the war, owing to a cornering of supplies by the large firms. Against this, and all the ramifications of the meat scandal, the new witness struggled, publishing, they claim, facts unpublished elsewhere and inspiring questions in the House of Commons. 
Bellock's irony, Chesterton's wit, point these articles and make them worth reading as literature, and there is some of the old fooling. A further series on the servile state is attacked by Shaw, who thinks that Belloc, since he is not a socialist, must be a follower of Herbert Spencer. G.K. accounts for this by saying that Shaw had not read Belloc. How do you know, retorts Shaw. It is not Herbert Spencer I have not read. Suppose you had your choice of not reading a book by Belloc and not reading one by Spencer. Which would you choose? Hang it all. Be reasonable. The economic front was never abandoned, and the paper continued to attack all forms of socialism, including the recreation of Bumble by Mrs. Sidney Webb, with all the regimentation of the poor for their own good that Bumble represented. The inner secrets of the Fabian office are unfolded by Shaw in a letter to Gilbert, dated August 6, 1917. My dear G.K.C., if you want to expose a scandalous orgy in the new witness, you may depend on the following as being a correct account by an eyewitness. You know that there is a body called the Fabian Research Department, of which I have the hollow honor to be perpetual grand, the real moving spirit being Mrs. Sidney Webb. A large number of innocent young men and women are attracted to this body by promises of employment by the said Mrs. S.W. in works of unlimited and inspiring uplift, such as are unceasingly denounced, along with Marconi and other matters in your well-written organ. Well, Mrs. Sidney Webb summoned all these young things to an uplifting at home at the Fabian office lately. They came in crowds and sat at her feet while she prophesied unto them, with occasional comic relief from the unfortunate perpetual grand. At the decent hour of ten o'clock, she bade them good night and withdrew to her own residence and to bed. For some accidental reason or other, I lingered until, as I thought, all the young things had gone home. I should explain that I was in the two pair back. At last, I started to go home myself. As I descended the stairs, I was stunned by the most infernal din I have ever heard, even at the front, coming from the Fabian Hall which would otherwise be the backyard. On rushing to this temple, I found the young enthusiasts sprawling over tables, over radiators, over everything except chairs in a state of scandalous abandonment, roaring at the tops of their voices in a quite unintelligible manner a string of presumably obscene songs accompanied on the piano with frantic gestures and astonishing musical skill by a man whom I had always regarded as a respectable Fabian researcher but who now turned out to be a demon pianist, out heroding, my secretary puts in two R's and explains that she's thinking of Herod's, Spangali. A horribly sacrilegious character was given to the proceedings by the fact that the tune that they were singing when I entered was Luther's hymn, Eine Festeburg ist unser Gott. As they went on, for I regret to say that my presence exercised no restraint whatever, they sang their extraordinary and incomprehensible litany to every tune, however august its associations which happened to fit it. These, if you please, are the Solomon sour neophytes, whose puritanical influence has kept you in dread for so many years, but I have not told you the worst. Before I fled from the building, I did at last discover what words it was they were singing. When it first flashed on me, I really could not believe it. But at the end of the next verse, no doubt or error was possible. The young Maynard next to me was concluding every strophe by shrieking that she didn't care where the water went 
if it didn't get into the wine. Now you know. I've since ascertained that the breviary of this black mask can be obtained at the Fabian office with notes of the numbers of the hymns, ancient and modern, and all the airs sacred and profane to which your poems have been set. This letter needs no answer, indeed admits of none. I leave you to your reflections. Ever GBS. The Shaw Worm Turns on Wells was a headline in the New Witness over a vigorous and light-hearted attack. The others were apt to score off Wells in these exchanges because he lost lightheartedness and became irritable. Even with Gilbert, he sometimes broke out, although in a calmer moment he told Shaw that to get angry with Chesterton was an impossibility. With Cecil Chesterton, it was only too easy to get angry at any rate, and he appeared in The New Witness. But I think when he heard Cecil was in France, Wells must have regretted one of the letters he wrote to Gilbert just before the change of editorship. It was curious, the contrast between the genial personality so loved by his friends and the waspishness so often shown by Cecil and his staff in the columns of the paper. His extraordinary personality, writes E.S.P. Haynes, wonderfully penetrated the eccentricity of his appearance. His features were slightly fantastic and his voice was as loudly discordant as his laughter but the real charm and generosity of his character were so transparent that one never seemed to be conscious of the physical medium. Yet, with all my sympathy for many of the new witness ideas, my nerves jangle when I read the volumes of Cecil's editorship, and I think jangled nerves explain if they do not excuse this outburst by Wells. My dear GKC, haven't I on the whole behaved decently to you? Haven't I always shown a reasonable civility to you and your brother and Bellock? Haven't I betrayed at times a certain affection for you? Very well, then you will understand that I don't start out to pick a needless quarrel with the New Witness crowd. But this business of the Hoofer book and the New Witness makes me sick. Some disgusting little greaser named uh, something has been allowed to insult old FMH in a series of letters that make me ashamed of my species. Huffer has many faults, no doubt, but firstly, he's poor. Secondly, he's notoriously unhappy and in the most miserable position. Thirdly, he's a better writer than any of your little crowd. And fourthly, instead of pleading his age and his fat and taking refuge from service in a greasy obesity as your brother has done, he is serving his country. His book is a great book, and your writer just lies about it. I guess he's a dirty-minded priest or some such unclean thing when he says it is the story of a stallion and so forth. The whole outbreak is so envious, so base, so cat-in-the-gutter-spitting at the passerby that I will never let the new witness into the house again. Regretfully yours, H.G. Wells. Gilbert replied, 11 Warwick Gardens, Kensington West. My dear Wells, as you will see by the above address, I have been away from home and must apologize for delay. I am returning almost at once, however. Most certainly, you have always been a good friend to me, and I have always tried to express my pride in the fact. I know enough of your good qualities in other ways to put down everything in your last letter to an emotion of loyalty to another friend. Any quarrel between us will not come from me, and I confess I am puzzled as to why it should come from you, merely because somebody else who is not I, dislikes a book by somebody else who is not you, and says so in an article for which neither of us is even remotely responsible. I often disagree with the criticisms 
of the writer. I do not know anything about the book or the circumstances of Hoofer. I cannot help being entertained by your vision of the writer, who is not a priest, but a poor journalist, and I believe a free thinker. But whoever he may be, and I hardly think the problem worth a row between you and me, he has a right to justice. And you must surely see that even if it were my paper, I could not either tell a man to find a book good when he found it bad, or sack him for a point of taste which has nothing in the world to do with the principles of the paper. For the rest, Haynes represents the new witness much more than a reviewer does, being both on the board and the staff, and he has put your view in the paper. I cannot help thinking with a more convincing logic. Don't you sometimes find it convenient, even in my case, that your friends are less touchy than you are? By all means, drop any paper you dislike, though if you do it for every book review you think unfair, I fear your admirable range of modern knowledge will be narrowed. Of the paper in question, I will merely say this. My brother, and in some degree the few who have worked with him, have undertaken a task of public criticism for the sake of which they stand in permanent danger of imprisonment and personal ruin. We are incessantly reminded of this danger, and no one has ever dared to suggest that we have any motive but the best. If you should ever think it right to undertake such a venture, you will find that the number of those who will commit their journalistic fortunes to it is singularly small, and includes some who have more courage and honesty than acquaintance with the hierarchy of art. It is even likely that you will come to think the latter less important. Yours, Sans Rancune, G.K. Chesterton. P.S. I'm rereading your letter in order to be fair as I am trying to be. I observe you specially mention letters. You will see, of course, that this does not make any difference. To stop letters would be to stop Haynes' letter and others on your side, and these could not be printed without permitting a rejoinder. I post this from Beaconsfield, where anything further will find me. It ended as all quarrels did that anyone started with Gilbert. Dear GKC, Also, I can't quarrel with you, but the hoofer business aroused my long-dormant moral indignation, and I let it fly at the most sensitive part of the new witness constellation, the only part about whose soul I care. I hate these attacks on rather miserable, exceptional people like Huffer and Masterman. I know these aren't perfect men, but their defects make quite sufficient hells for them without these public peltings. I suppose I ought to have written to CC instead of you. One of these days I will go and have a heart-to-heart talk with him. Only I always get so amiable when I meet a man. He, CC, needs it. I mean the talking to. Yours ever, H.G. Through the war's progress, Wells appeared to Chesterton to be expressing a powerful and individual genius, not his own considered views, but the reactions of public opinion. As Mr. Brittling, he saw the war through and even called it a war to end war. As Mr. Clissold, he asked of what use it had all been. Chesterton speaks of him as a rather unstable genius, and the genius and instability alike can be seen in his meteor appearances in The New Witness and in his books. Several of these he sent to Gilbert, who wrote September 12, 1917. I've been trying for a long time, though perpetually balked with business and journalism, to write and thank you for sending me, in so generous a manner, your ever-interesting and delightful books, especially as divisions touching the things we care most about drive me 
every time I review them, to deal more in controversy and less in compliment than I intend. The truth and the trouble is that both of us are only too conscious that there is a great war going on all the time on the purely mental plane, and I cannot help thinking your view is often a heresy, and I know only too well that when you lead it, it is likely to be a large heresy. I fear that being didactic means being disproportionate, and that the temptation to attack something I think I can correct leads to missing, in my writing, not in my reading, a thousand fine things that I could never imitate. It is lucky for me that you are not very often a book reviewer when I bring out my own shapeless and amateurish books. In the autobiography, G.K. calls Wells a sportive but spiritual child of Huxley. He delighted in his wit and his swiftness of mind, but he summarized in the same book the quality which runs through all his work. I've always thought that he reacted too swiftly to everything, possibly as a part of the swiftness of his natural genius. I've never ceased to admire and sympathize, but I think he has always been too much in a state of reaction. To use the name, which would probably annoy him most, I think he is a permanent reactionary. Whenever I met him, he seemed to be coming from somewhere rather than going anywhere. As he was so often nearly right that his movements irritated me like the sight of somebody's hat being perpetually washed up by the sea and never touching the shore, but I think he thought that the object of opening the mind is simply opening the mind, whereas I am incurably convinced that the object of opening the mind, as of opening the mouth, is to shut it again on something solid. No change of mood in the public meant any change in the new witness group. In a powerful article in reply to an old friend who asked for peace because the war was destroying freedom, Bellick told him that freedom had gone long since for the mass of Englishmen. How many, wrote G.K., pacifists or semi-pacifists resisted the detailed destruction of all liberty for the populace before the war? It is a bitter choice between freedom and patriotism, but how many fought for freedom before it gave them the chance of fighting against patriotism? From the New Witness, May 31, 1917. Again and again they touched the spot on the question of trading with the enemy. In this, as in all their attacks, they made one point of enormous importance. Do not, they said, look for traitors and spies among waiters and small traders. Look up, not down. You will find them in high places if you dare to look. They dared. And here came in once more what was commonly regarded as a strange crank, peculiar to the Chester Belloc, their outlook toward Jews. Usually... Those who referred to it spoke of a religious prejudice. Again and again, the new witness, not always patiently, but with unvaryingly clarity, explained. They had no religious prejudice against Jews. They had not even a racial prejudice against Jews, though this, I think, was true only of some of the staff. Their only prejudice was against the pretense that a Jew was an Englishman. It was undeniable that there were, for example, Rothschilds in Paris, London and Berlin, all related in conducting an international family banking business. There were Der Langers in London and Paris, pronounced in the French style, whose cousins were Erlangers, pronounced in the German style in Berlin. How, the new witness asked, could members of such families feel the same about the war as an Englishman? They could not to put it at its lowest, have the same primary loyalty to England or to Germany either. 
Their primary loyalty must be, indeed it ought to be, to their own race and kindred. Yet this was surely an excessive simplification. We have only to remember that lately a son of the Der Lange house died gallantly as an English airman. We have only to remember the thousands of Jews who fought in our ranks in this war and the last. Very many Jews are patriotic for England and for America. Many were patriotic for Germany. This, no doubt, makes the problem more acute, for any discussion is nonsense that omits this certain fact. There are Jews patriotic first for the country they live in, the country that gave them home and citizenship, of which often their wives and mothers are descended. There are others who feel that Jewry is their patria. This was the fact the new witness could never forget. A Jew might not be specially pro-German in feeling, yet his actions might help Germany by being pro-Jewish. International Jewish trading was trading with the enemy, and was to a very large extent continuing in spite of assurances to the contrary. Moreover, international finance was getting nervous over the continuance of the war as a menace to its own future. It wanted peace, a peace that should still leave it in possession in this country and in Germany. Gilbert Chesterton was passionately determined to cast it out. He was a Zionist. He wished for the Jewish people the peaceful possession of a country of their own, but he demanded urgently that they should no longer be allowed to govern his country. Marconi still obsessed him, and the surrender of English politics to the money power seemed to him to represent as great a danger for the future as Prussianism. For a moment, the two dangers were the one danger, and against them was set the people of England. It was at this moment that Chesterton published his epic of the English people, which he called A History. Frank Swinnerton is told, as recounted in Georgian Scene, page 93, how this book came to be written. Chado and Windus, for whom Swinnerton worked, had asked G.K. to write a history of England. He refused on the ground that he was no historian. Later, he signed a contract with the same publishers for a book of essays, then discovered that he was already under contract to give this book to another firm. He asked Chado and Windus to cancel their contract and offered to write something else for them. Swinterton's account continues. The publishers, concealing jubilation, sternly recalled their original proposal for a short history of England. Shrieks and groans were distinctly heard all the way from Beaconsfield, but the promise was kept. The short history of England was what Chesterton must have called a wild and awful success. It probably has been the most generally read of all of his books, but while the credit for it is his, he must not be blamed for impudence in essaying history, when the inspiration arose in another's head, not mine, and when in fact no man ever went to the writing of a literary work with less confidence. You can find no dates in this history and a minimum of facts, but you can find vision. The history professors at London University said to Lawrence Solomon that it was full of inaccuracies, yet he's got something we hadn't got. G.K. might well have borrowed from Newman and called it an essay in aid of a history of England. He showed something of the great moral change which turned the Roman Empire into Christendom, by which each great thing to which it afterwards gave birth was baptized into a promise or at least into a hope of permanence. It may be that each of its ideas was, as it were, mixed with immortality. The English people had been free and happy as part of this great thing, cultivating their own land, establishing by their guilds a social scheme based upon pity and a craving for equality, building cathedrals and worshipping God, and with the Holy Land much nearer to a plain man's house than Westminster 
and immeasurably nearer than Runnymede. All life was made lovely by this prodigious presence of a religious transfiguration in common life, and only began to darken with the successful rebellion of the rich under Henry VIII. Probably too big a proportion is given by Chesterton to the great crime that overshadowed for him the rest of English history. Yet he does justice in brilliant phrasing to the 18th century Whigs, still more to Chatham and Burke and to Dr. Johnson, whom he so loved and to whom he was often compared. But supremely he loved Nelson, who dies with his stars on his bosom and his heart upon his sleeve. For Nelson was the type and chief exemplar of the ordinary Englishman. The very hour of his death, the very name of his ship, are touched with that epic completeness which critics call the long arm of coincidence and prophets the hand of God. His very faults and failures were heroic, not in a loose but in a classic sense, in that he fell only like the legendary heroes, weakened by a woman, not foiled by a foe among men. And it remains the incarnation of a spirit in the English that is purely poetic, so poetic that it fancies itself a thousand things, and sometimes even fancies itself prosaic. At a recent date, in an age of reason, in a country already calling itself dull and businesslike, with top hats and factory chimneys already beginning to arise like towers of funereal efficiency, this country's clergyman's son moved to the last in a luminous cloud and acted a fairy tale. He shall remain as a lesson to those who do not understand England, and a mystery to those who think they do. In outward action, he led his ships to victory and died upon a foreign sea. But symbolically, he established something indescribable and intimate, something that sounds like a native proverb. He was the man who burnt his ships and who forever set the Thames on fire. The Ballad of the White Horse had been a poem about English legends and origins. The history, too, was called a poem by the reviewers, and it was. It was a poem about Falstaff and Sam Weller, and even the artful Dodger, who in so many British colonies had turned into Robinson Crusoe. His rulers had tried to educate him. They had tried to Germanize him and to teach him to embrace a Saxon because he was the other half of an Anglo-Saxon. All English culture had been based for a century and more on ardent admiration for German culture. And then the day came and the ignorant fellow found he had other things to learn, and he was quicker than his educated countrymen, for he had nothing to unlearn. He, in whose honor, had all been said and sung, stirred and stepped across the border of Belgium. Then were spread out before men's eyes all the beauties of his culture and all the benefits of his organization. Then we beheld, under a lifting daybreak, what light we had followed and after what image we had labored to refashion ourselves. Nor in any story of mankind has the irony of God chosen the foolish things so catastrophically to confound the wise. For the common crowd of poor and ignorant Englishmen, because they only knew that they were Englishmen, burst through the filthy cobwebs of 400 years and stood where their fathers stood when they knew that they were Christian men. The English poor, broken in every revolt, bullied by every fashion, long despoiled of poverty and now being despoiled of liberty, entered history with a noise of trumpets 
and turned themselves in two years into one of the iron armies of the world. And when the critic of politics and literature, feeling that this war is, after all, heroic, looks around him to find the hero, he can point to nothing but a mob. End of chapter 21.